So we're continuing our REACH series today where we're talking about um, the questions of Jesus, the questions that Jesus asked. And so I didn't know this, but as I was looking up and doing research about the questions he asked, Jesus asked over 300 questions. Oftentimes, he actually asked more questions than he gave answers. Some, he asked questions to strangers, to Pharisees, to teachers of the law, um, to his disciples, and he asked them to everyone. In fact, one of the times he was asking the questions to the Pharisees in John 10, and the Pharisees said, stop, stop talking to us in riddles and asking us questions. Just speak to us plainly. And so he said, yes, I am, I am the Christ, the Messiah. And then they went to reach for stones to stone him. He was like, are you, are you seriously going to stone me after I, I, for the miracles I'm doing and all these things? And he said, no, we're going to stone you for these other reasons. And he said, that's what you get for giving people answers, evidently. So, so questions are a good way of uh, building bridges. But the, the great thing is that even, um, even though we're in this series about reach and asking questions to reach other people and people who don't know Jesus, one of the things that God spoke to me over these last couple weeks is, is that I'm in as desperate need of asking Jesus questions as anyone else. You see, if, if we were going to just ask questions to non-believers to draw them closer to God, but we ourselves aren't comfortable asking questions, then why are we doing that? Are we trying to manipulate people? Are we holding them to a different standard? Are we trying to control them? I know I've felt that way in the past. And I realize that I'm in just as need of the deep questions that drive us as anybody else. The disciples were in just as much need for that. So God challenged me with that question about seven to nine days ago. You see, I had a different sermon prepared. I was good to go. I'm like, I'm going to be ahead of the curve. I'm going to do my fancy book Bible learning. And I, got, I had this three-point sermon. And, and it, was, it was at least okay. It was maybe even a little bit better than okay. But it was like, okay, that's, that's a fair sermon. And about seven days ago, God said, why are you preaching that? And I was like, what? I, but I've done all this work. He's like, yeah, but why are you preaching that? And I said, well, you know, I, I thought that this would be fit into our REACH series and, and all of these things. And then I realized that, wait a minute, I don't, peop, you don't really want to hear what I have to say. And so then I, I pivoted. And I wasn't actually going to share this, but in, in prayer this morning, it became clear that I should share this. So I'm being a little vulnerable here. But I started with a question. God, what do you want to share? What do you want to say? And I had to write a whole new sermon in these last seven days. And can I tell you, I was sweating bullets. I was, I've never been more thankful for Labor Day, like in my whole life. <laughs> Even like from school, when you get out of school, like never more thankful than just having a day to be like, okay, it's crunch time. We gotta, we gotta prepare what God you're saying. But this week has been an amazing week of diving into the word and discovering together what God has to share. And the word came alive to me in new and exciting and wonderful ways. So I'm excited to share that. In Proverbs, it says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. And I saw a little bit of that, and um, I'm excited to share that together. One of the things I saw was is that there's been this uh, metaphor that has come through over these last several weeks about planting seeds in our research. And 
that asking questions, it does plant seeds, but it also waters that seed. And as that seed grows, it allows for the light to shine and for incredible new growth to come. Now, when the light shines, it's actually kind of like a superpower. So what I'm sharing is, I mean, take it with like, responsibility here, because I'm, I'm going to share with you a superpower here. That as you answer questions, ask questions, the answers that God gives you can turn parts of our faith that may be fragile, anti-fragile, with the, the pictures that have already come through. As we test and, and come with a heart, not just to like question God, but with humility and care and deep curiosity of, God, why? Why is this the case? God can speak amazingly and powerfully well. So I'm going to start with a story, okay? Because you're saying, Matt, that sounds great, but practically, what does that even mean? So I don't know if any of you guys here are, are blues fans. No? Not, not so many blues fans? Okay. Okay, we got one person. We got one person fan of the blues, okay? Um, but there's this blues musician called Daryl Davis that I don't know if you guys have heard. Um, I'm not a huge blues fan either, so, um, but, but I, I have heard of Daryl Davis. And so he was trained in jazz, and he played the piano and blues for many years, and he played with famous people like Jerry Lee Lewis and, and other people. He toured in, in clubs in Chicago. But that's not why I heard about him. I heard about him because one day he was playing in a club, and after playing, he sat down at the bar, and, and Daryl Davis is a Christian sat down at the bar, and the person sitting next to him was a Caucasian gentleman, and said, I have never heard um, an African-American man play blues like that. You, you play like Jerry Lee Lewis. And Daryl Davis said, well, I've played with Jerry Lee Lewis, and we both learned from the same place. Blues comes from the African-American community in the South, and he started sharing that, and, and this Caucasian gentleman was like dumbfounded. He was like, what? That's where blues comes from? And Daryl... Davis was wondering, like, who is this guy? Like, I've, I've talked to maybe thousands of Caucasian people. I don't think he's ever talked to an African-American person. So they kept asking questions and talking back and forth. And then the guy next to him kind of elbows him. And he's like, hey, tell him who you are. Tell him who you are. And so that gentleman says, well, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And Daryl Davis starts laughing. He was like, you're not part of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> you know? And the guy said, no, no. And he takes out his wallet, goes past his like, credit cards, and here's his membership to the Ku Klux Klan. And Daryl Davis, in that moment, freezes. And he's like, what do I do from here? And a lot of things kind of race through his mind, but he decides to just ask questions. And they start talking, and they just keep talking. And at the end of the conversation, this member, who was actually a, a cyclops in the Ku Klux Klan, which was a, a site leader, I had to look this up for, for the speech, but um, I, I'm not very familiar with the Ku Klux Klan, uh, in case you haven't noticed, but, but he, he said that, he was like, here's my number, next time you're in town, call me up and I would love to come and see you. So next time Daryl Davis was in town, he called him up. And that gentleman brought many of his Ku Klux Klan friends, his whole chapter, came to watch him play the blues. And they just kept talking, and he invited some of them to dinner, actually. He, um, this, this gentleman was actually uh, imprisoned at, at one point, and he picked up his kids and took them to prison to visit his dad in prison, um, even when none of his other clan members like, were willing to do that. And all of those 
events, and we heard last week about acts of service and a couple weeks ago about hospitality. Daryl Davis did all of those things. But the thing that was the most powerful in his name, in, to, to Daryl was asking questions and asking questions with his Christian faith in the way that Jesus asked questions. That Ku Klux Klan member eventually decloaked from the Klan, and he gave Daryl his white cloak. And he introduced him to other people in the Klan, and they kept talking and kept talking. And over the course of years, over 200 people gave up their Klan membership and became friends, including what wizards and great dragons or whatever their different titles are, I mean, high up people. And Daryl Davis said it was like when you are talking and engaging with people, there's no real room for violence, that something magical happens in that time. Daryl Davis, there was a movie made about him, and he's talked about this, he's still alive, and he shares openly about kind of his experiences and how he feels like this was part of God's calling. Now, you may never meet a Klan member, maybe you have, I don't know, um, but this is, this is something that is really powerful for people, but also for ourselves. But let's, let's open up the Bible and look at um, the word. In John chapter 4, verse 4 to 10, and verse 25 to 26, I'll have it on the screen before me. But Jesus was just ministering, and he was talking to, to a lot of different people, and then he felt that he was going to go into Galilee. And normally, the way Jews go into Galilee is they, they don't go through Samaria, which is the most direct way, they go around Samaria and they cross the Jordan River just to avoid Samaria. And part of this is, is because Jews and Samaritans were like sworn enemies. And there were racial reasons for that. There were different races. Um, there was economic reasons for it. There were cultural reasons and there were religious reasons. There was a lot of disagreements between the two groups. But Jews would go out of their way to avoid that. But Jesus didn't do that. He went directly through Samaria and he stopped just outside a town in Samaria. In fact, he says, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And if you know anything about kind of the Middle East and the temperature in the Middle East, noon was like the worst time to do anything. You don't want to carry a heavy bucket in like 100 degree, 110 degree temperature with a beating sun, carrying it there and back. And here he was sitting by the well. Now, he doesn't have anything to draw water from the well. He was just sitting there. And right then, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy, to buy food. So imagine this. The only person who would come at that time was a Samaritan woman. And the only reason to come at that time was because you're trying to avoid other people. So she comes right in the heat of the day, expecting to see no one, and she sees a Jew sitting right there. And he asks her a question, will you give me a drink of water? Her response is, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. As I read about 
Bible commentaries of this living water, the description is like a spring bubbling up within that is overflowing. That contrasts directly from a well, a deep well where you have to drop a bucket and have like lift this water and pull it out all the way. It was a spring rising up with no effort, overflowing. That's what Jesus was offering. Now she was confused by this. She was like, well, how are you gonna give me this water? You don't even have a bucket. And he was like, well, I'm talking about a different spring and different water. And she asked him, or he asked her, well, just go and bring your husband and I'll, I'll give you this water. And she said, I don't have a husband. He said, you answered rightly. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've been married five times and the man you're living with right now isn't your husband. He saw a deep need within her. He saw rejection, being divorced five times in that culture and at that time was to feel utterly rejected and to seek desperately for your security, your value in a person. She was expecting to be rejected by this Jew. She had been used to that her whole time. She was probably expecting to be rejected by other Samaritans, which is why she came at noon. She was asking for something, but Jesus saw her deeper need and said, I was gonna, I'm going to give you what you really are asking for. She realized that, that he was a prophet. He said, sir, so here you're standing in front of a prophet, and what is the question she asked him? Well, hey, you Jews worship here at this temple, but we worship in that temple. Where is the right place to worship? She said, neither. It's not about the place you worship. It's about true believers worship in spirit and in truth. Then she says in verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus then tells her, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She then leaves the bucket with water, runs into town, and engages all the people she was trying to avoid. And she yells to them, I met a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Can he be the Christ? Can this man be the Christ? And then people who would have rejected her, who did reject her, who have rejected her, were drawn to her because of a question. And they followed her, this outcast, to the well. They came to Jesus and they said, they asked him questions, and they said, will you stay with us? And he said, yes. And he and the disciples stayed with them two days. There was not one miracle recorded. There was not any other radical work or healing or sign or wonder. And yet, it said many believed. Many in the Samaritan town came to believe. In fact, if you look before this, you'll realize that, and just like I, and I didn't realize this until I was reading about it, that this woman, the Samaritan woman, was the first person Jesus revealed himself to. This was the first person other than the disciples, kind of the stranger, that he said, I am the Christ. And he openly shared it to them. He came for the least of these. He came for the broken, the outcasted, for those who were cast away by the world. So I love that picture of him planting seeds, watering that seed, letting the light shine, and for this woman and the Samaritans to receive him with joy.
What an incredible picture. And that, that picture charges me up. I love asking questions. I think if, if you know me well, you know that, that I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> it comes from a good place. It's for good things. It's for good reasons. I've had to learn it because I used to just tell people things. That's not received so well. <laughs> because people aren't always asking me for my opinion. And so I, I've learned over time to just ask questions. In fact, this was one of my favorite things about college was asking questions, staying up late at night and talking about um, the meaning of life, people from all different cultures and religions and about God and what do they think and this is what I think. And I would love having those questions and hearing perspectives I've never had before. One of those conversations was with um, one of my best friends. We went to college together and we would ask those questions and he came from a Hindu background. And we would talk about what he believes and what I believe and what is the meaning of life and who are we and what is this all for? And um, he would tell me about his religion and I would talk to him about Jesus. And he loved hearing about Jesus. He said, wait, you can have a relationship with God? Like you can ask him things and he'll tell you? Like you can hear from God? Like how does that work? And we would just talk about things. And over the years, we just kept in touch, and we would have this conversation talk back and forth. And there were times where I just felt like he was so close to receiving Jesus. And to be honest, there were times I got frustrated. Because I could see, I was like, I know you want to know Jesus. Like, what's holding you back? He was like, well, family and culture and tradition. I mean, there's so many things holding me back. And I was praying for him one, one day, and I was like, God... What, what do I need to say to him to help him to believe? And I was like, God, please, like, help. Like, what, what can I do? How can I help him to see? And I went to sleep, and I had this dream. And it was this really vivid dream where he was running, and he was, like, frantically running. He was, like, running, running as fast as he could. And he was looking behind him, and right behind him was Jesus. And Jesus was, like, just jogging effortlessly, <laughs> effortlessly. Peck, Peck talked earlier about Michelle and Sheetal running um, the half marathon yesterday, and that's how, that, like, that's the picture. They, were just, they just effortlessly run. When, when I run, I'm like, <laughs> and I was like panting and sweating, and I'm soaked. After, and it's, she knows, like, it's been like half a mile. Like, are you seriously, like, are you finished already? And then they're doing 13 miles, like effortlessly gliding. I saw a picture of them crossing the finish line, and they were just like, that's like the beginning of my race, right? They look like the beginning of my race, you know? And so he was like running, and he was like sprinting as fast as he could, and Jesus was just effortlessly gliding, not really trying to overtake him, just keeping a safe distance right behind him. And then my friend in the dream got tired, and he stopped running, and he turned around, and he embraced Jesus. And they gave each other like the biggest hug that you'll ever see. And he just started weeping. And then I woke up, and I was like, that's what I want, Jesus. And I realized that I couldn't do that for him. But when he was ready, Jesus was right there for him. He didn't have to find Jesus. Jesus was right there waiting for him, like the kindness of Jesus, of just waiting patiently for us to be ready, came through, and the compassion of Jesus. That he's not trying to control us, he's not trying to manipulate us. Never once in the Bible do I see Jesus trying to like, manipulate anybody. And I realized that if I convinced my friend to follow Jesus, someone else would just convince him to follow something else. That that's not what I wanted his faith to be based on, but rather a revelation of Jesus. And only God could give that to him. When I was preparing, I, um, I came across this, um, this verse from Matthew 16, 13 to 17. And 
it's when Jesus is ministering to people and he, he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? The disciples thought about it for a second. Then Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's where revelation comes from. The Father who is in heaven. We have no power to convince anyone of anything. And the word came alive in this week as I was preparing. That memory of this time with my friend came rolling back to me. And I realized the word is living. It's true. It resonates with you and me. It's just as relevant for us now as it was 2,000 years ago. Later on, when I was talking to that same friend, we had a mutual friend who um, was diagnosed with cancer. And he was diagnosed in his, in his mid-20s um, with cancer. And it was a terrible kind of cancer in his brain, and it went through his spine. And my friend and I from college, we were both in, um, in medicine, and um, we knew that it was grim. It, it looked really bad. And our mutual friend, went to many doctors and suffered greatly under their care. He had chemotherapy and radiation. They would inject the chemotherapy directly into his spine. It was torture. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. And I asked my friend, I was like, hey, do you think, do you think we can pray for him? And he said, well, you know, I've, I've asked my friend many of the same questions that, that we would ask each other. And what he told me is that he's an atheist, that he doesn't believe there is a God. But at least he doesn't know if God, God is real. And I said, well, let's, let's ask him. Let's ask him if we can pray. And so we asked him, and he said, yeah, sure, you can, you can pray for me. I've tried everything else. And so we welcomed him into our home. <clears throat> we welcomed him into our home and um, prayed for him. And he brought uh, his sister, his brother-in-law, uh, our mutual friend. And I was like, wow, this is a, it's a whole bunch of people here. <laughs> and I brought with me a couple of people from, from church. And the year before, I had seen God do a radical healing. Someone who is dying come, come back to life, who is dead and like right about to die and just radically come back to life. It's a long story, a story for some other time. But I was full of faith that God could heal him. If God could heal that person, God could heal him. And we were praying and, and here's a guy in his 20s. I was like, God, if you heal him, he'll come to faith in you. This is, this is an incredible opportunity. And we were praying and when he walked into my, um, my house, he, he just looked dim or like this heaviness was over him. And as we were praying, different things were happening, and um, I won't go into that, but at the end of the prayer, there was like this light around him. It was like this glow that was over him. And I was like, what is this? 
what is going on? But I, I didn't think he was necessarily healed. Afterwards, he went to the doctors and um, he got his checkups and the cancer hadn't gone anywhere. In fact, it was just slowly getting worse over time. I was so disappointed. To be honest, I still am. And I came to God and I said, why? Why wouldn't you heal this person who came to you? When we look at the, when we look at the Bible, in John chapter 6, 67 to 69, Jesus had just fed the, the 5,000. And he had just shown people signs and wonders. <clears throat> the people kept following him. There were crowds of people following him. And Jesus said to him, all these people following him, they said, you know, some of you are following me just for signs and wonders. Other people were following him because he had given them bread. He said, you're just following me because I gave you bread. And then he starts telling them that actually what you really need is the bread of life. And my body is the bread of life. And my blood is all that can give you life. And we know now, in retrospect, he was talking about communion. He was talking about the sacrifice that he would give on the cross for us. But people didn't understand. They would say, who can hear this? They were offended by what he had to say, by the answer he gave them. And many people left. There were crowds, and after he said that, they said, who can listen to this teaching? And all of the crowds disappeared. They had seen signs and wonders, but that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. One offense, and they all left, except for 12 people. So Jesus turned to the 12. He said, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Good old Simon Peter again. Stepping up, piping up for the disciples. Where are we going to go? He didn't understand what Jesus was saying more than anyone else did, but he knew that he was going to follow him to whatever end. To whatever end. That's the feeling I have. That's probably the feeling you have. I know that we've all been disappointed. We all have disappointments. We all are trusting for people to be saved, and maybe they haven't come to faith. We've all prayed for things that haven't come to fruition. But you're here because where else would you go? You're drawn to Jesus, to whatever end. And so was this fisherman, was a tax collector who was writing a gospel, were common everyday people who were not on some pedestal, but are just like you and just like me. So as our friend continued to get more and more sick, he eventually, um, you know, he started asking us questions, and he would call me out of the blue and just call and ask, you know, Matt, like, what about, tell me about Jesus. And I was like, yeah, well, what do you want to know? And he was like, well, who is Jesus? And, and why did he come to earth? And, 
you know, like, why did he have to die on a cross? And I would, I would explain to him that it was out of love and compassion for us, that he wouldn't have come if there was any other way, and, but he came just so that we could know his love, that we could draw on closer to him and we could be with him forever, that, that nothing that we did before or have done now or will ever do would ever separate us from his love, that we never had to worry about that ever again, that we could be with him forever. And we would talk, and just like hours would go by. And then he was hospitalized, and, and again, our, our, my friend from college was there at his bedside as he was dying. And in the last you know, few minutes of, of his death, or the last hour, he asked him, he was like, what, what do you want to talk about? And he said, tell me about God. And he said, sure. As any good friend would say, which God? do you want to hear about? Do you want to hear about many Hindu gods? Do you want to hear about Buddha and Buddhism? Do you want to hear about Jesus? And our friend said, tell me about Jesus. And my Hindu friend said, well, Jesus is God. And he came to this world so that we could all be saved. He came because he loved us so that all who put their faith in Jesus could know the joy of his love and could be with him forever. Then he looked at my friend and he said, do you want to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he said, yes, and they prayed together. And he said, my friend who's a doctor said, I've never seen someone dying had as much peace. And he smiled, the biggest smile you've ever seen, as he drifted off into the next world. I asked my friend, why did you say that? Where did you come up with that? He said, I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. It was like, it was like something was bubbling up inside me. It was like the words just kind of bubbled up and and I just had to say that. I was like, I don't know why I even said that. Like rivers of living water. Like a spring coming up inside him. Later, my friend who was a doctor also gave his life to Jesus. And I saw a little bit of a bigger plan. <clears throat> that God's ways are higher than my ways, that I would have done things <clears throat> very differently. But I trust him. Since then, I've asked, I've asked God, will I see my friend again? And I believe I will. <clears throat> Can I have some water? Yeah, please. <laughs> See, another question, and then you get, you get an answer to your question. Thank you. So much better. That was, that was the reason. You know, I just had this tickle in my throat, and, you know, maybe allergies. I think that's, that was the secret, so. Yeah, it was too much water. I was leaking. Yeah, I sprung a leak. You're right. You're right. Okay. So much better, guys. I'm good. I'm good. But I got to be honest, I wasn't good after that. Still, every time I prayed for someone, I would always remember him. I was actually afraid to pray. I would get nervous about praying now for healing. 
Whereas before, I was so excited to pray for someone healing. I was like expecting or anticipating something amazing happen. Now I was just bracing myself for disappointment. And for years after that, I was just like shying away from praying for healing and just didn't know why. And actually, to be honest, I never really asked God. And then until I did, years later, asked God, why am I like so hesitant to pray? And God said, it's because of your deep disappointment. And then God ministered to me, and he, he, he reminded me of who he was and how he was the great healer. He is the great physician, not me. And then my hope was in him. And all of a sudden, I felt this big weight and pressure lift off my shoulders. And I started praying, not with some preconceived notion of what should happen or how it should go, but just with open hands, ready to just see what God would do, even if it's not what I expected. Well, in this week, as I was also preparing, I felt God bring me to John 21, verse 15 to 17. Now, this is after Jesus was crucified, and the disciples were so disappointed. So disappointed. This, this person who they grew to love, they spent three years with and saw all these amazing things, was stripped naked, beaten, whipped, bleeding, hung on a cross to die. Nails driven in his wrists and in his feet. Can you imagine how traumatic it is to see someone you love go through something like that? I can't even imagine what they were thinking and the shock that they had to be feeling. They skull scattered. They were all huddled for their lives. They were afraid. They didn't even know what to think. And then Jesus came to them in his resurrected body, and he met them in his home. And he met them and showed them that, hey, everything he said was going to happen, happened. And he did that not once, but twice. A second time, when, when Thomas wasn't there the first time, he came again and reminded them of that. He said, look, see, look at my hand, palms. I'm, I'm he who was resurrected. And you would think, okay, after two times of seeing the resurrected Jesus, the disciples were just going to be full of the Holy Spirit and excited and running out and, and sharing the good news and gospel. That's not what happened. They went back to fishing. They went back to what they knew. Peter was kind of the chief disciple. We saw he was always the one piping up. And we, we see that he was the one with six other disciples who were fishing. So seven out of the 10 disciples, I mean 11 disciples, remember Judas committed suicide, out of the 11 disciples were all together fishing. They just went back to what they knew. And they didn't catch anything. Going back to your previous ways will never get you anywhere. And why were they doing this? Well, Peter just denied Jesus three times. See, when they, when they captured Jesus, Peter tried to defend Jesus and cut off the ear of, of, of one of the servants that was there. Not the guards taking Jesus, but one of the lowly servants. That's about how as brave as he was. And Jesus healed that person's ear. He's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you picking on the, like, the smallest person out of everyone, you know? And, and Peter then was like following at a safe distance, and it was a cold night, and his, Jesus' captors had a charcoal fire. And Peter was drawn to their fire, and he warmed himself at their fire. And one of the servant girls said, 
weren't you with Jesus in, in the garden? And, and Peter denied him and said, no, that wasn't me. And then the father of the person he cut off the servant's ears said, wasn't that you who was in the garden with Jesus? He said, no, no, that wasn't me. No, I don't know this Jesus person. And then a third person said, wasn't that you? And he called upon, the Bible says he called upon curses upon himself and said, the Lord curse him, basically, if he's lying. And he said, I don't know this man. And right then, the rooster crowed a second time, and Jesus looked right at him. And Peter realized he had denied his friend, his Savior, three times, and he was broken. He was wept bitterly, the Bible says, and he just wandered off. Seeing Jesus, seeing the truth of the resurrection wasn't enough for Peter. Even seeing him twice wasn't enough. He went back to fishing. And then, while fishing, there was a person at, on the shore, 100 yards away, saying, put your net on the other side, similar to how Jesus called them at first. And he did, and they caught this huge load of fish, 153 large fish. And then John, the disciple, said, it's the Lord. And again, remember, it's dark. They're fishing early morning, and it's 100 yards away, and you can't see. But John realized that that's Jesus. And then Peter couldn't wait. He put on his outer garments and jumped into the water and swam to the shore while they're all tugging the boat behind. And he gets to the shore, and this time he warms himself next to a fire that Jesus makes. And Jesus already has fish prepared. And then in that special encounter, this encounter that Peter has just with Jesus, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It wasn't answers that drove Peter, but those questions. He denied Jesus three times, and three questions reinstated him. The truth wasn't enough, but it was the question that led to the light of revelation shining. Peter was transformed. Peter then, boldly in Acts, jumps up in front of people, crowds of people, boldly declaring who Jesus was, and saying, the person that you crucified he is the Christ. And people were cut to the heart. They said, how, how, what is it that we need to do to be saved? And thousands came to know Jesus then. Peter, just like us, just like me, are transformed by questions. It turns our disappointment, our discouragement, feeling disqualified, bringing those before God, turns all of those into new faith. 
the seeds God planted before and that he's watered patiently over time, he shines a light on that and new revelation comes. It's a superpower. It's something underutilized. It turns our fragile faith and those, those fragile things that she'll talk about, that porcelain kind of vase that we want to keep hidden away, it makes it into something anti-fragile and strong and to be tested and that could withstand questions and accusations and, and rejection. It can withstand all of those things. What are the questions that you would ask God? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a good man? Is he a prophet? Or is he really God who came to die on a cross for you, for me, for your friends, for your Aunt Sally, for your sister who doesn't know, for your neighbor, your coworker, for all of those people? When God has disappointed you, where would we go? Is that disappointment enough to still follow him to whatever end? Maybe you've struggled with things in the past and you feel like you're disqualified, like you could never, you can't even face Jesus anymore. Maybe you can ask Jesus how he sees you. And you can ask him, does he love me? Do I love him? And see what he would do. Maybe we can take just one minute right now to just kind of have a moment with Jesus, to ask him whatever questions that you have. Questions of, who am I? What am I doing in this world? Can you really work to me, even with all that I've done? Do you really love me? Do you, do you think I'm beautiful? Are you going to reject me too? Dear Lord, I ask that those questions that drive us, those burdens we've been carrying, that we would bring them before you right now right here, that we wouldn't wait. That, Lord, you would help us to see how you see us. To see ourselves with the same kindness, care, compassion. That we would discover things together. That we could walk with you and, and be the people that you made us to be. That you'd help us to be pleasing in your eyes. That you would be proud of us that we would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I pray for new hope, new faith, to pray for people who are sick and to trust for your signs and wonders. To pray for the lost to be saved. And Lord, I pray right now for anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, that today would be the day that they receive you with joy. In fact, I ask that as every head is bowed, and as, as we are praying to this Jesus, if you want to give your life to this Jesus, 
who's so kind, so compassionate, who will never leave you, never forsake you. I would just ask that today would be the day that you raise your hand. Not because of what I've said, but because of a revelation that our Heavenly Father has given you today. Feel free to raise your hand so that I could pray with you today. Dear Lord, I thank you, Father. Thank you for what you're doing, what you've done, but more importantly for who you are. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you love us too. We want to be with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.